one of my sisters this week is my oldest sister. My oldest sister is 10 years older than I am. Uh, I have uh, three sisters altogether spread out between that 10 years and and myself um, on there. Now, we can go weeks without talking to each other. Uh, I can go weeks without talking to, you know, to my sister. Um, but th- this week I talked to her twice, actually, and uh, it was it was kind of interesting. Part of our um, conversation always re- revolves around health trips and uh, trips to the doctor because, well, that's what happens when you get older and stuff. You get more doctors and you get to, you get to do you know more of those appointments. Um, during part of the conversation, she was giving me an update on our sister in Florida. Uh, now, our sister has lived in Florida for, gosh, I don't know, she moved there in the 60s. Um, you know, and she's a nurse, the one in Florida. She's a nurse, and she's been having some hip problems that have been giving her regular routine pain when uh, when she moves, you know, particular ways and things. And uh, my sister was telling me that my sister in Florida had gone to the doctor and to find out what was going on, and the, and the doctor's response was, well, you're getting old. <laughs> that conversation came while I was studying this passage. Turn to Genesis chapter 24, page 18, and it was interesting to me because it was a, it was a very day that I was um, reading through this passage, uh, re- literally within hours of when I read, began reading this passage, um, you know, and that, that uh, very first verse. Now, if you're at that, if you're at, at uh, Genesis 24, look at, uh, you know, look at, look at the very first verse. I'm talking to my sister. The doctor's response was, well, you're getting old. And here's the verse I was reading and studying. Abraham was now old, getting on in years. Um, okay, so I've had this conversation with doctors before too, and it's, I find it annoying because when they tell me something and then they say, well, at your age, dude, you know, (laughs) don't give me this at my age stuff. You're either healthy or you're not healthy. You know, this is either a good thing or it's not a good thing. It's not, well, at your age, you know, we're surprised you can still stand and, and, uh, you know, I I don't know. I don't know what it is they're thinking that that should happen at, you know, at my age at a particular thing. But it's, you know, it's, it's, it's like, it, it, th- thanks for the encouragement. You know, it's, you know, it's like you know, gee, you know, at your age, I'm surprised you can even climb stairs. Uh, you know, the the uh, uh, well, here we have it. Abraham was now getting on in years. Follow along. It says, and the Lord had blessed him in everything. Abraham said to his servant, the elder of his house, who managed all he owned, "Place your hand under my thigh, and I will have you swear by the Lord." God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live, but will go to my land and my family and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, suppose the woman's unwilling to follow me to this land. Should I have your son go back to the land you came from? Abraham answered him, make sure you don't take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from my native land, who spoke to me and swore to me, I will give you this land to your offspring. He will send his angel before you, and you can take a wife for my son from there. If this woman is unwilling to follow you, then you're free from this oath to me. 
but don't let my son go back there. So the servant placed his hand under his master Abraham's thigh and swore an oath to him concerning this matter. The servant took ten of his master's camels and departed with all kinds of his master's goods in hand. Then he set out for Nahor's town, Aram Nahareim. And there he made the camels kneel beside the well of water outside the town at evening. This was the time when the women came out to draw water. Lord, God of my master Abraham, he prayed, give me success today and show kindness to my master Abraham. I am standing here at the spring where the daughters of the men of the town are coming out to draw water. Let the girl to whom I say, please lower your water jug so that I may drink. And who responds, drink and I'll water your camels also. Let her be the one you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this, I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. Verse 15, before he had finished speaking, there was Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor, coming with a jug on her shoulder. Now the girl was very beautiful, a young woman who had not known a man intimately. She went down to the spring, filled her jug and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, please let me have a little water from your jug. She replied, drink, my Lord. She quickly lowered her jug to her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I'll also draw water for your camels until they have had enough to drink. She quickly emptied her jug into the trough and hurried to the well again to draw water. She drew water for all the camels while the man was silently watched her to see whether or not the Lord had made his journey a success. We're going to stop there. We're going to pull from some of the other verses that come, but let's pray. And then we're going to get into this a little bit more. Father, thank you for your word to us. It's not something that, um, some, some of this that, that we just read, it's not something we easily relate to. I pray you will give us your understanding as we look and that we will see that it's not just an ancient word, but it's a word to us today as well. So make your word very clear. I pray that you would help and me as I try to communicate that what they would hear is the word from you, Father, and your blessing and guidance. Uh, so watch over this time, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now what you have here in this passage, and it continues on, uh, you have the, the uh, longest narrative as well as the longest chapter in Genesis. It's 67 verses, and it continues on with, uh, with the unfolding of, of this event that happened here. Uh, the event th- that's going on here, chapter 23, which we looked at last week, so chapter 24 is just three years after chapter 23. Abraham was old when his son Isaac was born. He was a 100 years old when his son Isaac was born. We glanced at that last week. Now, he was 37 years older in chapter 23 when his wife Sarah died. Now he's another three years older. He's 140, and it seems he is still being guided by God's word to him that came 65 years earlier when he was told, uh, when he was called by God to leave his home country, and he was told, you know, that as he traveled to this land, that this land was promised to his descendants, uh, to and that his descendants would possess this land. You know, and it seems very clear he was still guided by this. Now it says that he is old and he is getting on in years. Now we could look at Abraham's life to this point, you know, and we could say, well, you know, God hasn't come through yet. God hasn't come through. Abraham only possessed one field that he purchased in order to be able to bury his wife. 
That's the only part of the land he even had. And at that, he paid an outrageous price for that land. He paid an exorbitant price. Now, I love the rest of verse 1 of that first verse. You know, that not only was he old and getting on years, it says, And the Lord had blessed him in everything. What a statement. What a statement. Here he is, 140 years old, through all of the struggles, through all of the trials, through all of Abraham's missteps. And remember, he didn't always make the best choices uh, you know, he was he more, you know, he lied about his wife more than, you know, more than one time. He didn't always make the the best choices, the wisest choices. He was coming when he left his land. He was coming from a polytheistic society, one in where they they worshipped more than one God. They had false gods. They had idols. And he came from that society and he was brought into this land and he was learning what it meant that there was that there is really only one God. And here we're told that God blessed him. What a, what a great reality there. You know, Romans 8, 8, 28 tells all things, all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Uh, all things. Even those, those, those missteps, those struggles, those trials, God can use those and does use those and wants to use those for good to make us more the people that he desires us to be. Now, at this point in life, where he's getting on in years, you know, and, and he's, he's old, at this point, some would be cutting back, you know, laying low, uh, taking it easy. Uh, you know, that's, that's not Abraham's choice here. You know, that's not his choice. What we see here is that Abraham is still living by faith. You know, where it tells us God blessed him in everything, Abraham is still living by faith. Notice, he is not simply talking about faith. He is not simply talking about the good old days. No, that's not what he's doing here at all. He's still making choices based on that faith. He is making a choice here and directing his life by his faith in God. He's saying to his servant, based on what God had told him, you know, he's saying, this is what we need to do. This is the course of action we need to take. You know, to be able to get a, a wife for, our, for my son Isaac, this is the course that we need to take. Now, we find this a little odd because um, I asked Ginny to marry me. You know, it wasn't somebody else that was there. But th- that's the society we live in, you see. We live in a society where we kind of make those choices and determinations. There are still, uh, much of the world today, there are still arranged marriages. There are still those, those, those marriages where, you know, the, the, the man and the woman don't, they don't pick their spouse and we think, oh, that's weird. It's weird to us because that's how, that's how we, you know, we are not used to that. Those who live in that in that society, uh, those who you know who still do that, they don't find it strange at all. In fact, they find some of it comforting. You know, I was I was uh, I wasn't personally talking, but I was uh, heard part of a conversation uh, with that, and and this guy was saying, I didn't have to, I didn't have to, you know, worry, and I didn't have to wonder about you know, who I was going to marry and what was going on. I didn't have to concern myself with that. I was able to concentrate on my studies and things because this was all set out for me. They, they like to see, but here, so Abraham is still involved in that. He's making choices based on his faith in God. 
you know, on what he owns one field in the land that God had promised to give him and his offspring. One field, that's all he owns. You know, it's not this enormous land. It's one field just so he could get that burial plot for his, you know, for his wife. He only has one son, one son in a line that is promised that there will be so many that they can't be counted that will be plenty to be able to inherit all of this land. And he only has one son. But through the years, God had come to learn or Abraham had come to learn that God was faithful. God was faithful and would do what he said. Now, what we can grab from this for our life, you know, as God's people, is, you know, that we should make choices based on faith in God's faithfulness. Not based on what we see before us, but on faith in God and who he is and his faithfulness. He is God over everything, not just some things, over everything. He will do what he said he will do. He's not, he's not doing a bait and switch. He's not, he's not telling you one thing and doing something else. He will do exactly what he said he will do. He always acts consistently with his character, with his being, with his attributes. You see, one of the problems in a polytheistic society, one of the problems, you know, those who, who worship false gods and false idols is you never know what mood that God is in. You know, see, because, because their, their, their whole thinking was, you know, if something bad happens it's because God was in a lousy mood. And you see some of this dragged over into, into God, the, the worship of, of God by God's people. You know, you see that because they used to think that, well, if something lousy happened in your life, it's because you're a sinner. We still sometimes fall into that trap of thinking that way. You see, but that's not the reality. Reality is God is consistent, always consistent with his character, with his being, with his attributes. He is always God. And how we live our faith, how we live our faith is a reflection of our belief in God's being and in God's character. How you live your life is a reflection of your belief in God's being and in his character. If you don't think he can be trusted, then then you then that's how you begin to live your life. You begin to live it hesitantly. You begin to put in your own ideas and your own thoughts instead of following what God says. But and if you think if you think he can be trusted, then you begin to live your life that way. Your life reflects how you live out your life reflects your belief in his being and in his character. Now, Abraham's faith here, his faith in God is shown in how he lived out his commitment to possess that land. We saw last week that he purchased this field so he could bury his wife, you know, just one little plot so he could bury his wife there in the new land instead of taking her back to what was home. You know, this passage here tells us that Abraham wanted a wife for Isaac from his homeland, from his own people, Yet he was not willing to have his son Isaac leave this land here in order to find a wife. Now at this point, Isaac was the only offspring that God, that he had, you know, to inhabit the land that God had told him would happen. You know, Isaac was the only one. And Isaac was not married. Not, not, not much promise there, you see, to fulfill this, this situation. You have at least two problems here. And, and they're allowing Isaac to leave. At least two problems. You could come up with more and feel free to do that. One would be, you know, the, the problem of perhaps Isaac would choose to stay back in Abraham's homeland and not return, you know, to this land that God had led them to. 
Because you see, in the homeland there, he would have some possession of more land. He would have more rights. He would be more respected. Here, he was a stranger. He was a foreigner. Now, another problem could be that if Isaac left and Abraham passed away while Isaac was gone, because remember, Abraham was now old and well along in years, and if he died, you know, it's not a short journey. It was 450 to 500 miles over rough terrain to get back to the land where he came from. And they were walking this thing. You know, messages traveled slowly. People traveled slowly. It wasn't an easy thing. It was an arduous task to be able to do that. There wasn't somewhere you could just stop and eat. You had to, you had to, you know, provide your own food. You had to, uh, you know, sometimes kill and, and then take care of cooking and cleaning this, this, you know, these animals to be, it was a long involved journey. Now, if Isaac was gone when Abraham died, then Isaac would not be there to claim that small patch of ground that he currently owned in the promised land. So as you're looking at this, it almost seems to make sense to have, you know, to leave him at home. Yet it kind of made sense to have Isaac go along on the journey to get a wife. Because if Isaac married a Canaanite woman, a woman of the, of the land they were in, there would be a question of ownership of the land later on. You see, because it was no longer, there would no longer be separate. There needed to be some clear divisions between Abraham's descendants and the Canaanites. Isaac needed a wife from Abraham's people. There needed to be a clear division between those two for the possession of the land. And, you know, and, and here, you know, after a long journey, if this woman balked and didn't want to come back to the land, well, if Isaac traveled along, he would be right there. It would save a tremendous amount of time than having to come back 450, 500 miles and, and get Isaac and, and get Isaac and then go back again, you know, to say, well, here he is. Now, what do you think? You know, it just saved a whole lot of a whole lot of trouble. It would be easier to have him go along. Circumstances could could be seen as favoring, you know, Isaac leaving the land there, traveling on a journey to get a wife. Yet Abraham wasn't guided by circumstance. He wasn't guided by circumstance. He was guided by faith in God. God told Abraham this was to be his new home, and Abraham believed God's word to him and God's promise to him and to his descendants. Faith follows God's word, not the present situation. Faith follows what God says, not pushed around by by, by what's happening right now. Abraham told his servant that God would send his angel to prepare and to guide a selection for Isaac's wife. See, that, that faith in God, he was guided because God had told him this was their land, and he was, and God was going to be with him. And so he, he believed God and trusted God. So the servant makes this 500-mile trip, and notice as soon as he gets there, he prays asking God to direct his efforts. He asked God to guide him. Now, it's clear in his prayer that what he knows about God he learned from living with Abraham. He, he was with, remember, he was the one, he was the, Abraham's longest serving servant. He was Abraham's, uh, when it says elder, you know, his, it's the one who has served with Abraham the longest time. Notice what it says again in verse 12. It, when he's praying, he says, Lord, God of my master Abraham, he prayed, give me success today and show me kindness 
to my master, show kindness to my master Abraham. Now we're going to look at the, the prayer a little bit more itself later, but drop down to verse 14. He says, by this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. He has that connection there. But later, later, if you look, you know, he responds in worship to God, <clears throat> to God several times. We didn't read these verses. Look at verse 26, verse 27, verse 52. You know, when he sees the answer to prayer, it says that he bowed down and he worshiped God. He, you know, he did this himself. So it seems that he had at least some kind of personal reverence for God, at least a fledgling faith of his own. It seems that it was more than a fledgling faith. But what he learned about God is clearly tied to his experience with his master Abraham. It's clear, there's clearly a tie there that he learned this from his master, you know, and, and learned about God. What you should see here from your guidance today, you know, is to realize that others will follow you, at least at first. Others are going to follow you. I remember attending a church service. It was at Harvester Avenue Missionary Church. And uh, I don't remember if it was when I was on vacation or it was one of our combined services. Dave Binkley was the pastor at that time. And Dave was up near the front here. And as Dave, Dave was, was here and I was sitting back in that area. And between us, you know, were a lot of other people. They have a, they had at that time, a, a special needs ministry there. And there were some older uh, adults there who were, you know, a, a little bit uh, cognitively challenged. But I noticed one gentleman in particular was watching Dave. And everything Dave did, this guy did. When Dave, you know, when Dave would stand and open his hymnal, this guy stood and opened his hymnal. He's looking at, but he's looking, he's always looking at Dave. If Dave raised his hand to sing, this guy raised his hand to sing. If Dave bowed his head, this guy bowed his head and looked, kept his eye. Everything that Dave was doing, this guy was doing. You know, he was, he was following, you know, he was following right along with what he, what he does. You need to realize some people are going to follow what you do. They are going to at least at first, people will learn about God by following your lead. So make sure you are following God. That's what we talked about with Scott and Don. You know, to make sure you're following God because their children are going to follow their lead. You want them to come to a relationship with Christ, not just their kids, but all of those people. You know, realize that your life and your faith will influence those closest to you. This was the servant who was with Abraham the longest. And it, what, what, it will, whatever your faith is, it is going to have an influence on those who are closest to you. The servant here prays that the woman who God prepared would go beyond the normal response. A normal response, normal courtesy would be when this man asked for water, you're going to give him water, you're not going to tell him no. That was just a normal response of courtesy. But he went beyond that, and he said, you know, he would, was, would look for the one who also would offer to water the camels. Now, if you remember, when we were reading this, he took ten of his master's camels loaded down. Ten camels drink a significant amount of water. Now, one of the commentators that I was, that I was reading, he did the research, he did the math. I'm not going to give you all the gallons and all this stuff, but he did the math on how much camels drink. 
and how much water a typical jug of that day held and how many trips from the well to fill, you know, to fill up this jug and then go back over to the trough to fill it. And he said it was between 80 to 100 jugs of water to satisfy 10 camels. 80 to 100 trips of filling that up. I was getting tired of reading his, you know, reading the math and all of this stuff. After the man prayed, you see, he prayed and then he took action on his prayer. It says that he ran to meet her and ask her for the water. He didn't just sit back and wait. He got up and did something. He didn't rely on his own ingenuity and his own thought. He prayed and then he he began to act in line with his prayer. We need to learn that. We need to learn that we need to live in line with our prayers. If you pray not to, you know, if you pray not to, you know, not to be tempted, doesn't it make sense then that you wouldn't put yourself in the way of temptation. You know, if you're, if you're struggling with, you know, with your diet or something, you know, if you're, if you're diabetic and shouldn't eat sweet, I'm not diabetic, so if I have this wrong, it's okay, just go with it. You know, if, if you're diabetic and you shouldn't be eating sweets and stuff, well, then why would you go buy yourself a box of Fannie Mae candy, which is some of the best candy, you know, by the way. DeBrand's is good too, but it's kind of expensive. Uh, you know, but why would you, why would you, why would you do that? You know, if, I've been trying to lose weight, and one of the things I asked Jenny, you know, to do was to quit baking cookies. <laughs> Say, well, don't you have any self-control? Yeah, a little. And there's cookies there. I mean, come on. They're cookies. Of course I'm going to eat them. You know why? Because they're cookies. And I like cookies. You know, so I asked myself for a while. It took a long time. It took a long time for me to get her to finally stop making, you know, cookies all the time. She said, well, I want you to have them to eat. I don't want to eat them, you see. I do want to eat them. But if they're not here, I won't eat them. You see. Why do, you, why do we put ourselves in the way of temptation sometimes? You know, if you pray, you know, lead us not. Lead, you know, don't lead me into temptation. Then you stay away from those things that you know you have a weakness for because, you know, one of the ways God leads you away from temptation is by making you aware of the temptations you have so that you can avoid the situations where the temptation will be. That's part of the answer to his prayer. You know, so when, when he gives us that, you know, we need to begin, we need to begin living in line with our prayers. Well, the, here the servant asks for a drink and it says, Rebecca gave him water and then offer, offers to water the camels, all ten camels. And her actions, that, that speaks volume about her character. I mean, it really does. It speaks volumes about the woman that she was. Now we need to look at the prayer of, of, the servant because it's it's easy to take this the wrong way is verse 14 says let the girl to whom i say please lower your water jug so that i may drink and who responds drink and i'll water your camels also let her be the one that you have appointed for your servant isaac by this i will know that you have shown kindness to my master now this prayer is is right along the lines of gideon laying out a fleece and if you recall that story, Gideon is, is asked to do something by God, and he's not really sure he wants to do it. So he says, I'm going to lay out this fleece, uh, you know, a, a, a piece of, 
a piece of uh, sheepskin, and I'm going to lay this out, and you know, Lord, make you know, make the fleece wet and the ground dry, you know. And by golly, what do you know that happens? And he says, yeah, I wasn't quite sure about that. Let's do it the other way. Make the ground dry, and uh, you know, make the ground wet and the fleece dry, you know. And so he goes back and forth with that, and um, you know, now. These are great examples of a lousy way to pray. I, you know, sorry to burst your bubble, but some bubbles need bursting. And this is one of them. This whole laying out of fleece stuff. These are lousy ways to pray. You say, well, it's in the Bible. If so is the fact that Abraham lied. So is the fact that, you know, that, that David committed adultery. Those things are in the Bible too. And I would not recommend that you do those. In fact, you say, well, of course not. Well, these, I'm, it's, it's a lousy, Way to pray. You know, this, these, these are signs of a weak faith. This way, manner of praying is never commonly used in scripture. I, I think these are the only two incidents like this. You know, this was a, this way of praying was never commanded. It was never commanded. It was never commended in scripture. You know, the only sanctioned means of discernment that, that even comes close to this is the use of the Urim and the, and the Thummim in the Old Testament. Now you say, well, what are those? Those are stones that were, that were in the, in the breastplate of the, of the high priest and they use those sometimes to discern the, the will of God. And now there's even debate about what those things actually were, but they were given by God to help at special times to help them discern God's manner, God's will in a certain matter. It was never used a regular thing. It was never used regularly. But remember, all of these also came at a time when God's written word was non-existent or incomplete at best among God's people. It wasn't there. You know, and, and it was before the ministry of the Holy Spirit was there to guide and direct. Now, there are, there are some problems with this type of praying and thinking. You see, because this way of praying dictates to God what circumstances he should arrange. When you pray like this, it is us dictating to God what he should do to answer this prayer. It's not us following God. It's us asking God to follow us. We are not to tell God what circumstances he should arrange. We don't have that wisdom. We don't have that knowledge. God is under no obligation to follow our directives. He does not owe that to us at all. We are to live by faith, not to ask God for proof before we will move on. Jesus very clearly rejected the opportunity to give proof when he was asked to do that. In John chapter 6, he's a, they're asking him, you know, what can we do to perform the works of God? Jesus replied, this is the work of God that you believe, have faith, that you have faith, that you believe in the one he sent. What sign then are you going to do? that we may see, that we may have this proof there and believe in you. What are you going to perform? Our fathers ate man in the wilderness, just as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. 
Jesus said to them, I assure you, Moses didn't give you bread from heaven, but my father gives you the real bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one, is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said, sir, give us this bread always. I am the bread of life, Jesus told them. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry. And no one who believes in me, no one who has faith in me, will ever be thirsty again. But as I told you, you've seen me, yet you do not believe, yet you do not have faith. You're asking for this sign, and it is showing, he says, that you're asking by the, for the, this sign here, this proof. It's showing me, he says, that you don't have faith. They're asking for that. What does Jesus do? He points them to faith, not to proof. He has the opportunity to give them that proof there. They're dictating to God what should be done. And he is saying, no, you shouldn't live in faith. Now, some of you are going to say, well, you know what? I prayed that way and God answered. First of all, that doesn't make it correct. It does not make it correct. Scripture trumps experience. Got it? Scripture is above your experience. Always. The truth of Scripture is, is what we need to hold on to. And secondly, I would, I, I, I would say possibly someone answered your prayer. And you may not want to know who it was. The seeking of a sign is what led led people to administer justice by a throw, by throwing the accused person into a raging river or by strapping people to a dunking stool and holding them underwater and saying well if they're innocent then God will move and God will protect them and God will save them through this it's that same foolish reasoning They reasoned if they were innocent, God would watch over them. This is also the thinking that some in the crowd used as Jesus was crucified, as he hung on the cross. It says that he put, they're saying, he put his trust in God. Let God rescue him now. Don't touch him. Don't do a thing. Let God do it. If he wants him, for he said, I am God's son. Well, a little while after that, Jesus is thirsty and he asks for something to drink. And it says, immediately one of them ran, got a sponge, filled it with sour wine, mixed it on and hung it, fixed it on a reed, offered it to him for a drink. But the rest said, let's see if Elijah comes to save him. Don't do it, you see, because God will do something. We are to live by faith. We're to live by faith. And Habakkuk, it says, the Lord answered me, write down this vision clearly and scribe it on tablets so that one may easily read it. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It testifies about the end and will not lie. Though it delay, though it delays, wait for it, since it will certainly come and not be late. Look, his ego is inflated. He is without integrity. But the righteous one will live by faith. Romans chapter 1. It says, For it is God's righteousness is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Second Corinthians chapter 5 verse 7. For we walk by faith. We live by faith, not 
by sight. Galatians chapter 2. For the law, for through the law, I have died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians chapter 3. Now it is clear that no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. But the law is not based on faith. Hebrews chapter 10. But my righteous one will live by faith. And if he draws back, I have no pleasure in him. Hebrews chapter 11. By faith. Abraham, when he was called, obeyed and went to a place that he was going to receive as an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. <coughs> By faith, he stayed as a foreigner in the land of promise, living in tents with Isaac, Jacob, co-heirs of the same promise. We, we live by faith. So if we don't pray for signs, you know, if we don't dictate circumstances to God, then how do we know God's direction? First of all, we need to observe the circumstances that God lays out before us. Now, I said you observe the circumstances. You don't dictate the circumstances to God. <clears throat> you do not tell God how these circumstances are to be. You do not tell him what the circumstances are, are how they are to unfold. You look and you see what doors has God opened? What doors has God closed? What do the circumstances seem to be telling me to, to, to do? And, be, and what flows right from this is also to obey his word. You see, because how do the circumstances, you know, how do those line up with the scriptures? How does what we're doing now, how does what we are seeing, how does it agree with scripture? How do, you know, are we trying to justify our own actions and ignore his own word? You know, you, you look for that. And then you also seek his guidance. You seek that guidance of the Holy Spirit as you determine to walk by faith and not by sight. We're told that his witness bears witness with, his spirit bears witness with our spirit. And again, lined up with scripture, you obey his word. It's lined up with, your experience is never more important than scripture. Your experience is never more true than scripture. Scripture is true. If your experience is at odds with it, then you need to fix your experience. Not line out the word of God. Not ignore the word of God. Not remove the word of God from your life. You need to follow it and he calls us to live by faith. You know, he will work through other followers to help guide us, to help discern, you know, how God is guiding us, to help us see, you know, before the servant ever left on the journey, we're told Abraham prayed. He asked God to send his angels to prepare the way. He asked God to guide his servant to the woman who, who was to be the wife for Isaac. He asked God to guide that man. Abraham's servant then, he prays, he asked God to meet certain criteria. But did you notice, did you notice what the servant did after Rebecca offered to water his camel. If you have your Bible open, look again at verse 20. It says that she drew water for all the camels while the man silently watched her to see whether or not the Lord had made his journey a success. According to his prayer, as soon as she offered to draw water for the camels, he should have said, that's it, you're it, you're the one, you're coming. Because that's what he prayed for. You see, but he realized, he realized somewhere along in there that that was that, 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 that couldn't be enough. And it says, and he is observing to see if God answered 
Abraham's prayer before he ever left on that journey for guidance and for direction. He watched to discern God's leading in the situation. The seeking of a sign, asking God to act according to our whims, is not praying in faith, and it is not living by faith. God's people, God's people pray in faith, knowing God will answer. So we look at the circumstances in faith, and then we follow his leading in faith, knowing that he knows what is best. Praying is not done until we follow through on the prayers to God. As you read the rest of this chapter, we're not going to do it today, nor are we going to do it next week, I don't think. You know, Rebecca returns with the servant. You know, as God unfolds, and, and, and Rebecca returns with the servant and, and marries Isaac, you know, it says then that he was comforted. He was comforted in the loss of his mother as he walked, as he was able to experience the results of walking and living by faith. That's what we need to do.